Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, OMG or Oh My God. Lead Pastor David Fossil has been guiding us as we look at who God is, his different attributes and characteristics, and discovering why those should matter to us. Join us today as Pastor Dave helps us in our search for a better understanding of God as we examine his holiness and how that can affect our lives. Go ahead and grab the study guide that's in your program. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. That's going to be page 487. If you grab the Bible on the back table, page 487, Isaiah chapter 6. So there's this girl who had a blank piece of paper. She had her crayons out and she was drawing and she was coloring. And uh, her mom says, sweetie, what are, you, what are you drawing? And, uh, you know, what are you coloring? And the girl turned to her mom and said, God, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the mom said, oh, sweetie, you know, the Bible says that, you know, we don't, we don't really know what God looks like. Girl looked at her mom and, they, and said, they will know when I'm done. <laughs> we are in this series called OMG, Oh My God, and we are trying to really get a picture of who God is. We're trying to get a better understanding of his character and of his attributes. And if you haven't been with us, you can listen to the podcasts online. We've talked about his omnipotence, his all power, his omnipresence, that he, he is everywhere, his omniscience, that he knows everything. Today we're going to go in the next, uh, the next little direction, talk about the attribute of his holiness. One thing, so what, well, first thing I'm going to do is if you look at your study guide, I'm going to give you four different kind of understandings or uh, uh, characteristics of the holiness of God. If you're jo- jotting down notes, so write these down. The first is that when the Bible refers to someone as being holy or God as being holy, it, it, it means that he is perfect and morally pure. He is perfect and morally pure. First John chapter 1 verse 5, God is light. The idea that there is no sin in him. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. When the Bible refers and talks about darkness, it's talking not just about, you know, when it's 1 o'clock in the morning. It's talking about moral darkness. There's no moral darkness in him at all. He's perfect and morally pure. Now, quick question. I'm going to need you to look carefully at the screens. Can anyone identify or see an imperfection or a flaw? You might need bionic eyes to see it. It was up there last week. A couple of you saw it. Can you see right down at the bottom in the middle? You see right there the little arrow, the little cursor? You see it now? Last week it was up there, and a couple people saw it, and they were like, I I couldn't see anything else the whole sermon. I couldn't even concentrate, you know? It's like when someone's got like a little piece of something in their tooth, and you can't keep but help looking at it you know somehow or another joy and i both missed that as we were reviewing and uh you know the 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 powerpoints weren't perfect last week you know no not many of you saw it but some of you maybe did god's powerpoints always perfect god's actions always perfect god's words always perfect everything he does is perfect But it's not just about what he does, it's also about who he is. It's the idea that he is morally pure. It must have been a good seven, eight years ago before security at airports got really tight. Um, I was at um, Oakland's airport, I was getting on a flight, and um, 
I made the mistake of going through the metal detector with my hands in my pockets. Apparently, you're not supposed to do that because as soon as I walked through, you know, a couple security guards, uh, guys flagged me over. Hey, 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 you, you, you right here. You're not supposed to have your hands in your pockets. So first thing they had me do was take off my shoes. So that was back in the day when you, everybody didn't have to do that. So take off my shoes. I hand it to them. They inspect them. Take off your belt. Took off my belt, handed it to them. Untuck your shirt. I was like, okay. So I untucked my shirt and they, you know, kind of felt around. Pull up your jeans and your pants from the bottom up. We want to see, you know, as far up as you can pull. And this kind of went on and on. They were doing all these things. And uh, so finally they realized I didn't have anything on me and I wasn't a danger to other passengers. They handed me all my stuff back. And I went back and I sat down. You know those chairs right there where you're allowed to put your shoes back on? There was an elderly senior lady sitting right there. She must have been waiting for her husband to come through security. And in jest, I turned to her and I said, thank goodness they didn't make me take my pants off. She looked at me with a straight face and she said, and so am I. And I was like, you wish, you, you wish, you know, I just trying to have a little fun. You know, <laughs> When God goes through the moral detector, when he goes through the purity detector, it never beeps. It never has beeped because he's completely morally clean and pure. The Bible says not only can he not sin or do wrong, he can't even be tempted to sin and do wrong. That's how perfect he is. That's one aspect of God's holiness. Another aspect, let's look at it from a different direction, is that the Bible talks about him being set apart and different from everyone. That's one of the areas that holiness speaks of. Psalm chapter 77, verse 13. Your ways, O God, are holy. They're separate. They're different. Okay? They're holy. What God, I want you to notice, small g, what God is so great as our God? Now, when the Bible asks a question like this, it's not implying that there are other gods. It is speaking from the perspective of the listener um, that, that may, may worship a Canaanite God or a pagan God. It's speaking from their perspective. It's a rhetorical question. What God, small g, is greater or as great as our God. And the immediate answer from the psalmist is there is no greater God than our God. There is no God, okay? And in this case, and in this verse, it's because of his holiness, because he's separate, he's different. Did any of you grow up in a house where mom had special plates? Special plates. You know the ones I'm talking about? The ones that she would put in the hutch for everybody to see in the living room? You could only see them, okay? Except when only super special people came over. Right? Super special guests, and then we'd use the special plates. Or maybe Easter, you know, we get to use the special plates at Easter. But it wasn't because of you, it was because of Jesus we get to use the special plates, right? And I remember when, um, when the guests would come over, special guests, and we decided that we are going to use the special plates, you know, China or whatever they were. You know, I remember my mom looking at me from the kitchen. There I was setting the table, you know. She'd be looking at me from the kitchen in the living room. She had that, that, that look on her face as if to say, son... If you drop and break one of my plates, you will lose your salvation. I kid you not, you know. They were that special, right? They were that different. That's what God is. He is so different. He is so special. Interestingly enough, when you get to the New Testament, for example, the book of 1 Peter, we are told by Peter, you know, because you're spending time with God, because you are rubbing shoulders with God, I am expecting and God is expecting you, be holy, for I am holy. Be different because I am different. Be set apart under this culture and in this world because I am set apart and different to this culture. 
But one of the aspects of holiness is that he is completely different, completely set apart from a moral standpoint. Uh, Another aspect uh, of holiness is that God's holiness should evoke adoration and reverence and awe and fear. Psalm 99, verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool for he is holy. You know, nowadays, you know, you go to Macy's Sears, you get one of those recliner chairs where you can keep your feet up. But, but they used to have chairs, comfy chairs, and then they had to have a little stool, a footstool, and that's what you'd put your feet on. And what the psalmist is saying is, okay, when you come into God's presence, essentially what I want you to do is get eye to eye with the footstool. In other words, get on your knees, get on your belly, because that's where you, quote, deserve to be in the context of who God is and who we are. It should evoke awe and reverence. That's what it should be. And, and fear. Now, when I say fear there, I, I hear a lot of preachers. Did you go going to church when they said, you have to fear the Lord? That really means respect him. Okay? It certainly does mean respect. But let me be very, very clear. When the Bible uses that word, fear, it doesn't just mean respect. It also means scared. You should be scared to some extent. There was a study done of high school students that had not experimented with drugs. And they wanted in this study to figure out why. Why did this group of students not experiment with drugs when other students had? Was it a school program? Was it an advertising campaign, a national advertising campaign? Why? What was the reason? See if we can duplicate it. So they studied these students. And after spending all this time studying these students and doing research, the number one reason given by the students why they had not experimented with drugs, you know what it was? It was this, quote, because if I did, my dad would kill me. It was literally fear. Fear of what's going to happen if mom and dad find out that I messed up. We think fear is always a bad emotion. It isn't. In the right context, it's very good, and it's very healthy. Let me give you some examples. I'm glad my my second grader, Julia, is, quote, afraid of a hot stove. That's good. I'm I'm glad that she's afraid of a busy road. She doesn't just run out there. You know, uh, a couple years ago, they found a little skin lesion uh, on my forehead right there. And ever since there, in a healthy way, I became afraid of skin cancer. So when I go to the beach, and many of you do the same thing, we put lotion on. In the right context, fear is very healthy. And somehow or another, we in American Christianity, you know, Jesus is my friend, Jesus walks beside me day by day, yay, yay, yay. And that's good. It's good to emphasize the personal nature of God. He's not some God that doesn't want anything to do. No, he wants to have a personal relationship with you. It's the only world religion that teaches that. It's very unique in that. And we should be able to believe that, but at the very same time, understand that somehow we have lost a fear factor that is healthy in approaching God. Some of us bust into his presence like it's no big deal. No, no, no. Be careful. He is high, exalted on high. And we deserve to be at his footstool, the idea. It should evoke adoration, fear, and reverence. Let me give you one more idea as it relates to God's holiness. Uh, The idea is that he is filled with superhuman and potentially deadly power because of his holiness. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. God, 
who alone is immortal. That's another attribute of God. God who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Let's put this next slide up here. Let me show you an image. This is a computer animated graphic of what they have seen through a telescope. This is called right now the R131A1. R131A1. Back in July of 2010, Paul Crother, professor of astrophysics from the University of Sheffield's Department of Physics and Astronomy, announced that he and his research team had discovered this new star. Now, they're always discovering new stars. That's not the big deal. The big deal about this star is its mass and its brightness. When it comes to its mass, this star, the R131A1, is 265 times larger than our sun. Larger. When it comes to its brightness, it's not twice as bright. It's not 10 times as bright or 100 times as bright. It's not even a 1,000 times as bright as the sun. It's not even a million times as bright. These researchers have estimated that this star is 10 million times as bright as our sun. And I'll remind you of Paul's words, God who alone is immortal lives in unapproachable light. You, you really can't come into his presence. You, you, he is so great. He is so big. He is so holy. He is so perfect. His power is so, it's, he's so powerful. You, you, come, you remember those Old Testament stories when someone would say the wrong thing? Oh, when someone would touch the wrong thing, when someone would come into the wrong presence and boom, they would die. What do you think that did to God's people back then? They would have a healthy sense of fear because of who God is. See, I, I want us to balance this idea of he's a personal God and also this. He's almighty and deserves our reverential worship. Now, what I want to do for the next 10 minutes or so uh, is, is I want to spend some time looking at Isaiah chapter 6 because it's a very fascinating passage from the standpoint of God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. This past Thursday, news flooded the internet and the TV newsrooms telling us that Gaddafi, the dictator for Libya for so many years, was dead. Just a few years ago, we're we're being reminded of it right now because of the trial that's going on, we all were surprised to hear that the king of pop, Michael Jackson, was dead. When I was a little boy, it wasn't the king of pop, but the king of rock, who, because of an overdose, was dead, Elvis. Do you all remember when in the middle of of the summer, about, what was it, 10-some years ago, because of a high-speed chase in Paris came the news that Princess Diana was dead. And then, of course, if if you were alive during the time, everyone says it was like 9-11, you'll never forget where you were in 1963 when news was broadcast that the president 
shot down by an assassin's bullet, JFK, is dead. Don't skip those first four or five words too quickly. King Uzziah is dead. Who is King Uzziah? King Uzziah, at the age of 16, is crowned. He is the leader, the prime minister, the president, the king of his nation for 52 years. He's one of these guys that crosses generations. They didn't know anything else. It's King Uzziah. In spite of some of his moral failings, he was the greatest king that they had known since, since David. And word begins to spread, not because someone tweeted it, not because it's on NBC News or Fox News. No, it's word of mouth. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear King Uzziah is dead? And the nation is broken and they go into mourning. And this is the story, starts out of the prophet Isaiah. He, he's broken. And what's the first thing? He, he doesn't know anything to do. To, I'm going to go to church. You know, it's kind of one of those churches that always has the doors open and just kind of come in and you can pray and whatever, light a candle, whatever, just come in. That's where he goes. He goes to church. He goes to the temple. And when he goes to the temple, begins, he begins to see this vision, this vision. What's fascinating to me is the contrast. He goes to church. He goes to temple because the king is dead. And the first thing he's reminded of is that the king of kings is not dead. Let's make no mistake about it. He is going nowhere. He is still on his throne. He is still exalted. And he begins to see this vision. And one of the things he sees is he's seated on the throne, high and exalted. And then it says this, the train of his robe filled the temple. It's a rather strange language for us because we guys don't typically wear something that has a train. Maybe you're going to have some costume for Halloween that has a train, but we don't typically wear that. In our culture, the only real piece of clothing that has a train is normally a wedding dress. We spoke of Princess Diana and her death. Do you remember her wedding? Do you remember just seeing the pictures or watching it on TV a little bit? Do you remember how long her train was of the wedding dress? It was so long you had to have all kinds of people holding it. She couldn't drag it all by herself. Now, was that just to make her look pretty? Was that just something kind of for fun? Not necessarily, not really. In that culture in when you're in that situation with these type of people the length of a train is meant to refer to of refer to and symbolize royalty so take that symbol and now come back to isaiah the train of god's robe filled the temple he is so holy he is so incredible he is so fantastic his robe it fills the, it fills the whole temple Kind of an awkward way of saying it, but he has no other way of explaining it. I'll get back to the these super angelic beings in the middle there, but that these angelic beings, eventually they begin calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full, full of his glory. In our language, when you want to emphasize someone, what do we do? We highlight it. We underline it. We put it in all caps. We bold it. And maybe we put an exclamation point. That's what we do to emphasize something. In the Jewish language, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. So if I were to say, this is a big rock, oh my goodness, I can barely pick it up. That's what I would mean. If I said, this is a big, big rock, what I would be trying to convey is, we need like six or seven guys to pick this up, man. This, this sucker is heavy. If I were to say, this is a big, big, big rock, 
what I would try to be conveying is that it's a massive boulder that not, not, not any piece of machinery or anything could pick up. Fascinating to realize this when you look at this attribute of holiness that no other attribute in the entire Bible is referred to in this way. We never, ever hear God is love, love, love. Never. We never see God is merciful, merciful, merciful. Don't see it. God is strong, strong, strong. Don't see it. There's only one attribute. God is holy, holy, holy. And it's as if Isaiah is saying, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to put it on paper. I, I can't even use words to express who God is, how perfect he is, how morally pure he is, how separate from us he is. One of the things that I find fascinating in this initial account is the first word that Isaiah speaks, very first word, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, I saw. Why not we saw? He's going to temple and there's all kinds of other people there. I mean, that's how it was back in those days with a lot of people there. Why not we saw? Why aren't the rest of the people seeing the vision of God? It, see, this is a great reminder of something we picked, we picked up on just a couple of weeks ago. Where we talked about this idea that real worship, when you experience the power of God, more often than not, it has very little to do with what's happening on this side of the room. and has everything to do with what's happening in the hearts of this side of the room. It's the idea that you can have one individual who is sitting and is experiencing God and is broken and is convicted and is brought to tears. And they're sitting right there. And right next to him, you have another individual who is absolutely, completely unmoved. How is that? By the way, it had nothing to do with him being a prophet. It had everything to do with the softness of his heart and his listening ear. Prepare your heart to hear from God, to see God. What do we do with this? I mean, how do we respond to this? Some of it's pretty obvious. Some of it maybe not so much. I encourage you to write three things down that we see from the text. First response is the only thing they could think of is worship and praise. We've got to worship him. I don't have it on the screen, but look at verse 4. And the sound of their voices, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. I just want you to think about this for a second. Their first response is worship. But it's not one of this kind of quiet, meditative worship. They are singing so loudly that the doorposts of the temple are shaking. Have you ever been at a sporting event where something really cool happens, a touchdown or a last-second shot at the buzzer, and the crowd goes crazy and it feels like the building is shaking, or when they're beating on the bleachers and it feels like the whole thing is shaking? That's what the worship is causing. This is energetic worship. This is passionate worship. This is I am not leaving anything out kind of worship. It's all they can think to do. I put in parentheses there, Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Let me just read it to you real quickly. It is what's called a, a, a passage that complements or reminds us of Isaiah 6. In, in Revelation 4, the world's coming to an end. It's a cross-reference here. The world's basically done. Jesus is coming back. Oh my goodness, everybody. Yeah, you know what? I guess he was who he said he was. Paul says in Philippians that at some point in time in history, every knee will bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The issue is not will you. The only issue is when will you. Will you do it now out of reverence and admission for who Jesus is? Or will you do it in Revelation chapter 4 when you are forced to do it? You won't have an option at that point in time. No, you will be forced to bow a knee. And your eternity is very, very different from the person who's chosen to do it earlier. They bow a knee. All of God's people and creation is there. And they are beginning to acknowledge who God is, who Jesus is. And here's what we read. Listen how carefully the imagery matches Isaiah. Verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. Same imagery. They, They were covered with eyes all around, even his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we get everybody together. Everyone's there to acknowledge who God is. And the worship leader gets up and goes, Okay, before Jesus comes out, does anyone have any suggestions on what song we should sing first? What hymn do you guys want to sing first? Apparently, the one song that is first sung over and over again is this sucker right here. It talks about his holiness. His holiness. Whenever the living creature gives glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sit on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, now listen to the reason why he deserves worship. For you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. We don't worship God because he's fickle. We don't worship God because he's forgetful. We don't worship him because he has a low self-image. You know what? What I need you to do is get together all once a week and tell God how good he is. That's not why you worship him. You worship him because he's worthy. He's worthy of worship. He deserves our worship because he's all-powerful and because he's all-holy and because he's everywhere present and because he's all-loving. He's worthy of it. Nothing recalibrates your mind and your soul better than worship. The reminder of who he is in the context of who I am. The first response, seemingly the only response that seems to make sense for almost all of these attributes is worship. That's why we flip these services and some of you coming in a little late and the teaching's already started. It's because we want to have some worship on the back end. Because that's what makes most sense. But there's other things that that Isaiah does. Not only does he worship and praise, or at least the angels do, uh, the first thing that that Isaiah does is he becomes acutely aware of his own sin. He becomes aware of his own sin. Back to Isaiah, look at verse 5. His first response when he sees this vision, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King and the Lord Almighty. The first response that Isaiah has is not, Wow, this is so cool. His first response is not, I must be so special because no one else saw the vision, just me. That's not his first response. His first response is, woe is me. I am unclean. I, 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 can't, even, I can't even be in, in his presence. Fascinating that you see story after story after story in the Bible. When people have an experience of God and come into his presence, almost everyone has the same response. They can't handle it because they are so impressed with who God is that in the process they become unimpressed with who they are. 
They are, they are so captivated by His holiness that their own ungodliness comes to the forefront. That's the first response He has. One of the things I know and I've noticed is that people who are not bothered by their sin, not bothered by their sin, are not as close to God as they think they are. They just aren't. Because the truth is that the closer you get to God, the the more aware you are of where you fall short. The more you want to change for the sake of who God is. You can't help it. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which had been taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Last week, we talked about the idea that God is everywhere present and he knows all things. And we talked about because of that, he knows all your garbage, all your filth, mine too. And because of that, I wanted to caution you, don't live in the land of guilt Instead, live in the land of grace. And a lot of people said that really resonated with me. That was really helpful for me. But you can't take that analogy too far because it breaks down at some point. You see, guilt that is man-made, that comes from a pastor, from a priest, from a parent, from a coach, from a teacher, who you could never please. Man-made guilt. That's not good. You don't want to be in that land. But sometimes, guilt is good. If I were to do something wrong, if I were to do something sinful, if I were to do something or say something to you that was hurtful, what would, do you think this would be a good response? Well, you know, God knows everything there is to know about me. God loves me anyway. I'm just going to live in the land of grace. Is that how I should respond? Probably not. What would be a, a more healthy response is, I, I probably shouldn't have done that. I, I, should have, I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. That, that was hurtful. That was inappropriate. That's a healthy response. Did you see what he says? This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. I don't care what you call it. We like to sanitize the word. We like to call it conviction. Call it whatever you want. But every once in a while, you should have this sense from God that I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. That's a good thing. It means that you're, you're, you're approaching God, you're trying to live for Him, and He's going to point things out, and you're going to go, I, I need to change courses here. That's good. But not so you can live in your guilt, but so it can be taken away and your sin atoned for. Significant word when you read the book of Romans, reminding us, reminding us of what Jesus did for us to atone for our sins. He atones for it. Take your guilt, take what you did, take it to the cross, confess it, and make a decision. I'm not going to live like this anymore. For God's sake, not just because of who else I've hurt. So there's, there's this awareness of personal sin. Let me give me one more thing that you see here. The, the last thing is that he makes himself available to serve. He makes himself available to serve. In, in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? He's just come in contact with the character of God. He he has just begun to understand a little bit more of the holiness of God. And the very first thing God now says to him reveals not the character of God, but the heart of God. And God says, who who, who am I going to send? Who's going to go for me? Who's going to go to Penohai? Who's going to go to De Anza? Who's going to go to Chevron? 
Who's going to go to every place of work and employment you're at? Who's going to go to San Pablo and Richmond? Who's going to go to Orinda for me? Who's going to go to San Fran for me in Oakland? Who's going to go? Who's going to tell my story? Who's going to go? And Isaiah goes, here am I, send me, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. And oh, by the way, it's not because he's perfect, because he's just admitted he's unclean. But one of the most legitimate responses to God's character and holiness is to respond to his heart. And his heart is that he wants this community and those we rub shoulders with to know that Jesus makes a difference. That's what he desperately wants. There's a bunch of things that we could apply, but you know me, I always want to make sure that it's very, very clear. Let me give you two action points with this, and then we'll wrap it up. Two action points. First is we need to take personal holiness seriously. Frankly, that's what verse 6 and 7 is all about. Did you, did you catch the seraph, this angel, flew to me with a live coal in his hand? So the seraph goes to the, goes to the altar, takes out a piece of, you know, a, a piece of coal, goes up to Isaiah, and it says, it says, verse 7, then he touched my mouth with it and said, that, that sounds painful. It, it probably is. It's, you know, I wrote this down. It's what's called cauterizing something. I know some of you are in the medical profession, so I wrote this down right from the inner, make sure I didn't get it wrong. Or wrong. Pro- cauterizing something is the process of sealing a wound or destroying abnormal or infected tissue with a heated instrument. Every once in a while, you'll see like a, like an old Western, right? Someone gets shot through the leg and there's not a doctor around. What are we going to do? And they take something like a branding iron and then, what are they trying to do? They're trying to clean the wound out. That's cauterizing something. It, it kind of gives us a little idea of maybe what sin and getting rid of sin is going to cause. One, it probably causes a little bit of pain. Don't think for one moment that it's an easy process. No, there may be like, you know, like some pain, like, like pulling off a, 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 a Band-Aid or something. It's going to hurt maybe, but it's necessary. The other thing that I, I want to make sure you understand is, well, duh, Dave, isn't this obvious? I mean, I, certainly I want to, I'm here, right? I'm here. Careful. That would be like saying, you know, I'm a member at the Y, you know, and, and so I, therefore I'm healthy. No, not necessarily. See, you don't become healthy just by showing up uh, at the Y and looking at the weight machines. You don't get healthy by going up to the racquetball courts and going, man, those guys are really running fast. You, you don't lose any weight by looking at people doing Pilates or aerobic class and going, Man, they are really sweating. You don't. You actually have to do something. And it's the same with this, call it institution. A church exists for the same reason. We exist for health, for spiritual health. Now, being at the Y and showing up at the church is certainly a helpful first step. But make no mistake about it. If all you do is come sit and soak, it will not change and transform you. You must do something about it. What must you do? Here's what I want you to do. Take a personal inventory of your life and very simply ask God this question. God, what do you think I need to change or eliminate from my life? Just do it right now. God, what do I need to change or eliminate from my life? Normally the way God the Holy Spirit works in my life is when I sincerely ask him that question, which I believe you're doing, he always brings Typically, a couple things to mind. Take personal holiness seriously. 
The second thing I want to encourage you to do is to respond to God's holiness reverently, especially as you worship. I'm going to have the worship team come up at this time. We're going to wrap up with worship, but I want to draw your attention to one thing that I skipped over in verse 2, and with this I'll wrap. wrap it up. It talks about the seraphs, and it says they have six wings. Two wings they covered their faces, two wings they covered their feet, and two wings they were flying. My question is why? Why? God, uh, God never gives details in his word just to throw them in for, for no purpose. There's a reason behind it. And in this case, when you don't understand what's going, you have to go to other stories and passages in the Bible that begin to color in what is happening here. Do you guys remember the story of Moses? He spends 40 years as the prince of Egypt. He loses his temper one day and he, and he kills an Egyptian. So then he goes for 40 years and he's, he's a shepherd. And at the end of the 40 years... Um, he, he's, one day he, he's with his sheep and, and he sees that there's a burning bush and so he goes over to the burning bush and he hears a voice and the voice says this Moses take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground that's, that's what these seraphs are doing you know when I think of angels I think of you know, they're up with God in heaven all the time. You know, they go to the cafeteria together. You know, they just hang out. Apparently not. Even the seraphs have to cover their feet because they know they're in the presence of holiness. Well, what's with the wings covering their faces or their eyes? Do you remember the story in Acts where Paul, at the time named Saul, is persecuting the Christians? He's killing them left and right. And um, he's on the road to Damascus. And he comes into contact and sees a vision of Christ, of Jesus. And it knocks him off his horse. And the vision is so powerful, it literally blinds him. It blinds him. I guess it makes sense what they're doing here. They they can't even look at him. They're going to cover their face. I don't want to get up on your case, but all I want to say is this, because I could give you a dozen suggestions, but come into his presence reverently. Come into his presence reverently. Why? Because he's worthy. Because he deserves it. Irrespective of what Jesus did for you on the cross, that's just, that's extra. He deserves it even beside that. Because he's worthy. In a few moments, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. And as best as you can, with an open heart and with your voice, I want you to worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for who you are, and I thank you for what you've taught me. Father, I I believe that you've taught our church something about your holiness that maybe we didn't completely understand. I guess I was just surprised what a big deal it is in the Bible. I was surprised how your holiness seems to be that first domino that knocks everything else down, reminding us that you are great and that you are powerful and you are different and you are morally pure and there is no one that compares to you. Father, we want to take some time now to engage our minds and to engage our hearts to let you know what we think of you and how important you are to us. 
because you are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let us press in to that holy place where God dwells, knowing that the closer we come in, the more we are aware of our sin. What an awful wretch I am. I find flaw in even my best intentions. My sin stains the integrity of my spirit. I long to find counsel with the Lord, but my iniquity won't allow me to draw near to him. I want to touch him. I want to see him. I want to hear him. I want to walk with my father as Adam walked with his. But there is no way that we can stand before the fullness of his glory and live because he is holy. The angels cry, the multitude sings, 24 elders, four living beasts, all crying out in one accord, holy, holy, holy is the Lord most high who was and is and is to come. The heavens proclaim, the earth decrees, holy, holy, holy is the Lord most high who was and is and is to come. What does it mean? Father, right now we are asking for divine revelation. God, we want more than just words. We want holy impartation. Spirit of God, take us in to the holiest of holies. With fearful reverence, we tread boldly into the unknown, longing to offer our worship in his presence because he is worthy. We press in undressing our filthy garments through confession. We step in through the torn veil of flesh that once bore our sin, the door, Jesus, the Christ, he invites you to come. But we can only enter in through the glory of the Son. I shut my mouth for I am undone in the light of his holiness. The illumination of his face accentuates my stains. In him there is no variation or shadow where I can hide my shame. I am exposed, naked and vulnerable. But yet let's press deeper. I know that the conviction can be agonizing, but I can't go back to my old life. The enemy, he antagonizes me. The accuser spits venomous lies trying to blind my vision. But Jesus, your name shakes sin's chains and frees us from death's prison. We are redeemed, blood bought and washed in the color of crimson. We are new creations. We are holy temples for the spirit of God to live in. God, I give in. God, I give you all of me, God. I surrender. Let us exalt praise like a perfume of purity and no longer vainly sing songs that offend him. When we acknowledge him as God, we find transformation. Holy Spirit, we give you permission right now to change us. We want transfiguration. Let our lives be an imitation of you. Our character, our fruit, 
a right representation of truth. You see, since the days of my youth, he has prepared me for this day. And God, I want to speak rightly of you, but all I can bring myself to say is that you are holy. God, you only truly and intimately, you know me. And yet, and still, God, you chose me. You love me despite me. While we were yet sinners, you sent your son on the cross to die for me. Your grace is inviting. Your wisdom is enlightening. Your awesomeness, it excites me. But your holiness, God, it frightens me. Your love is an all-consuming fire. You burn for us jealously. You fight for us zealously because you must put sin to death. Your justice, God, is violent. You act to preserve our purity because your holiness requires it. You are righteous and intolerant. You are without measure, altogether worthy, perfect, wonderful. You see, there's, there's a song in my spirit that I just can't contain. It's a simple melody combined with just one phrase, and it goes like this. God, you are holy. God, you are holy. God, you are holy. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.